We are all set. You have not seen us live on a Saturday, but hell, we are sailing into Saturday with some excitement, a great guest. But good afternoon, everyone. This is Carol Sue, a.k.a. Naughty Boss, live with two... This does. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. This is Janice, aka Wellness Diva 5.0 at the controls as I am trying to maneuver and making sure that I have everything uh, running properly. Oh my gosh, we are so excited today. And before I introduce the doctor, um, I just want to say things happen in a way that are magical. The universe talks to us in different ways. And I just want to thank um dr cafe before i officially introduce you for reaching out to us it is our priv privilege and honor to have you on today so without further ado i would love to welcome you to the two sisters broadcast today dr anthony cafe thank you so much for being here thank you both thank you so much looking forward to sharing some really fantastic medical secrets that nobody really talks about in medicine that are really the, the best kept secret has to come with uh, is from our inner potential to heal. And around the time of surgery, where I spend most of my time in the operating room, there is so much potential that patients never really know about. And it, it's, it's so unfortunate because they come in the operating room, they have their memories wiped from the medications that we give and they lose out on a precious moment they have to learn about themselves and how they can wake up with their mind healed as much as their body. Unfortunately, it's usually the other way around after surgery because of the effects of anesthesia on the brain. But if we talked a little bit more about the potential that we have in that precious moment before we lose our memory to learn about ourselves, man, it would be such a different experience for so many patients. And I'd love to talk about that today. Well, oh my God, we have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin, but I will start out by saying, of course I had to, um, uh, check you out on TikTok, and your videos are inspiring. And it's not that they're comical, but they're like, you're just giving so much valuable information, but sharing it in a way that really the, the general public or the lay person such as ourselves can understand better. So thank you so much for sharing with your audience what you are passionate about. And um, I don't even know where to begin. Carol, Sue, you want to start us off? Well, you know, kudos on, you know, TikTok, because like many of us are tech tech challenge and it's a miracle if we can get the video right. When we're doing it, I'm still learning reels on Instagram. Uh, I've done a few TikTok videos myself um, and I just, I can't stop laughing when I'm doing them. So kudos that you're talking about some really uh, important information and impactful information and mindful information. And I think so many when, at least for me personally, and I know of other people that I've been chatting about this week, letting them know that you would be on, when you have that mindset that you're actually going into a surgery, usually, and not for everybody, but from, from everyone that I've been chatting with, they're usually focused on that specific specialty doctor that they're dealing with. Whereas, you know, whether it's, you know, your eye doctor, your heart doctor, uh, gen general doctor, whatever it may be, whatever your, whatever reason that you're actually getting treatment. And the only time 
You get to chat with the anesthesiologist is the form you got to fill out beforehand. And then you're already hyped up and nervous. You've, they've probably already given you a value. And then it walks in the anesthesiologist to kind of review things. And you're already kind of in la-la land. And everyone says, well, why don't, you know, why, why don't we have more of a connection with someone that is really putting us to sleep? And I said, that's a great question. I'm going to ask Dr. Anthony that. Like, why, why don't, but and before we get into the, those kinds of questions, share, you know, with our audience, our viewers and our listeners, you know, what drove you to this profession, number one. And, you know, obviously when you go to schooling and the college and the you know you know your internship everything that you're doing you're coming at it from a medical profession and i think over the last two years what jan and i've noticed with other medical professions that have been guests on our on our podcast is something's changed something remarkable has changed from the layman the you know the actual patient and the doctor meaning um i think patients are questioning things more because ultimately they are in charge of their body, their heart, mind, soul, and all of that. But I think that there's been a leap with many of the medical profession that are taking in exactly what you're gonna talk about. That besides the medical, there's all these other pieces that go into it. And if you could share with our audience kind of what you've learned and what, you know, what tweaked that, what changed that for you. Oh yeah. So I was originally an engineer where I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I was hardcore into the math and science and all that stuff, which is very important, needless to say, um, at Berkeley. And then I went to medical school across the Bay at Stanford and I, I spent some time doing medical devices, took some time off, worked in a startup because everyone gets you know sucked up in this Silicon Valley culture. And as an engineer, you come in and everyone wants to like fix things, want to fix problems. And I'm like, well, the biggest problem's got to be healthcare where 18, 19% of GDP, totally not sustainable, the sickest country in the world, despite all the money we're putting into our population, like let's try to fix healthcare. That was my MO. And it's funny because a lot of, to what you're saying, a lot of people want to kind of learn with Google and all these other resources online, they want to learn how they can fix themselves. And a um, couple, perils fall in there, but also a lot of great potential as well that we'll get to in a moment. Um, when I was in medical school, like I said, it was all into devices. And um, at the time, Bluetooth was like the big thing. And we were trying to figure out how we can like monitor our hearts. That project was for uh, congestive heart failure. How can you like mobile monitor? Right now, everyone does it with their watches and their phone. But back then, this is like the early days. We didn't have these right. things. So this is cutting edge. Um, Anyway, um, I went into after a lot of soul searching anesthesia because you're dealing with the most complex life support systems known in medicine. You're keeping somebody alive under under anesthesia. Remember that surgery is a totally unnatural state. Your body is literally being cut open. If you didn't have anesthesia, you would have a heart attack, a stroke, or you might kick the surgeon. Or you know, like you need to go into an unnatural state of anesthesia so you can tolerate the, un the unnatural state of surgery. So you need a lot of technology to make that happen. It's not just, you know, a mask that goes on and that's it. Your heart and lungs, everything changes under anesthesia. All your body's natural reflexes are abolished by anesthesia. So that's why you have all these fancy devices. So it made sense. Um, I went to Harvard for my residency, um, UCLA for an internship in between. Um, and it was around halfway through residency where day in, day out, you're breathing in this knowledge about life support. How do you keep people alive? 
things like breathing tubes, like one I have here. I mean, you're just focused on the hardcore pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics of all these medications and uh, ventilators and this and that, which are all very, very important. And what gets lost in the middle of all this, right? What gets lost is that there is a patient on the table. When I was a resident, I remember an attending one said, I just like to say the patient's name in the operating room because it makes everybody in the OR feel unsettled when instead of saying, oh, the patient's blood pressure is low, like I need to like make these changes, you say whatever John or Jane's blood pressure is low. Because we don't even, not that we're bad people, but we're so wrapped up in this mm -hmm. unnatural healing experience, this surgical experience here, we forget who's on the table. Once again, nothing against the training that I had, I'm so indebted and grateful for it. But it does leave so much to be desired in terms of who is actually getting the surgery. Is this the right surgery for them? What are we doing to make sure their body is optimized for surgery? <clears throat> and what are we doing to make sure that their mind doesn't come out broken? It was only after residency that I learned the prevalence of PTSD after surgery and after anesthesia, not just from the operating room itself, but from what landed them in the operating room in the first place. You don't go into surgery if you're healthy. You had something that led you there. Maybe it's cancer, maybe it's a traumatic accident. I mean, there could be any number of reasons, but these are not benign reasons. You don't just willy-nilly go into surgery. But are we acknowledging what brought patients in there? Not necessarily, not as well as we can. And unfortunately, as I learned more afterwards, I, I did a fellowship in integrative medicine under Andrew Weil, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil at the University of Arizona. And that kind of just blew my mind about how much is there about the mindset that we have. So earlier you were talking about surgery and how we're so focused on the specialists that we're going to. Obviously that's very important as are the ventilators and the breathing tubes and the medications, of course, those are all important. But do we ever think to prepare our mind and body? I mean, we prepare to give a speech. I prepared to talk with you today. You prepared for so many things in your life, prepare for physical uh, marathons and whatnot. But do we ever think about preparing our bodies for surgery, preparing our minds to go into a medical coma I don't think any of my patients have ever, have ever thought about this. They just, like you said, come in and sign a form. I mean, I do things differently. I call my patients the night before to begin oh, building I a therapeutic that. I love that personal touch because I mean, that, that's what I'm talking about. You you know, you're touching, you know, on two things so far, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I, I just had to say that is so, I think just making that human connection of recognizing that this is not just patient number, blah, blah, blah. Let's make sure that, you know, him or hers tag matches, you know, who we have on the table. Like you're connecting with that person from a more humanity standpoint, knowing their name. And I think that's awesome that you actually call your patients the night before. That's, I've never heard of that from, from, a, from an anesthesiologist. Kudos to you. Thank you so much. And you know what the funniest part of that is? I mean, we'll talk about all the benefits it has because there's very specific reasons why I do these things. But unfortunately, since nobody, apparently it's not a thing at all for anyone else. The number of times that I've been blocked, actually I have a whole routine now where I have to leave a voicemail, then I have to send a text to explain who I am because they all think that I'm like a telemarketer. They're like, wait, who are you? You're Dr. Who? They think I'm a scam because, <laughs> you know, we all have these robocall things, but it's actually not straightforward to get a hold of anyone nowadays because of this environment we're in with everyone trying to scam us and sell us things and take our social security numbers. But anyways, it's like a rigmarole, but it is so powerful. And that's really one of, one of medicine's best kept secrets is how powerful the mind-body connection is because we see it in patients 
even when they're unconscious, even when they have a breathing tube in their mouth, they can't speak to us because they literally have a breathing tube between their vocal cords. They wanted to, they couldn't talk to us, but we can tell if we look closely, even if we don't know about their past histories as much as maybe we'd like, we can tell things, not only about heart and lung conditions, those are easy to tell under anesthesia because anesthesia directly affects all the organs in your body. But we can tell about mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, PTSD. Now it's not 100% accurate. I'm not gonna claim absolutely not. Nothing in medicine is 100% accurate, but how strongly is your body keeping score that even in the unconscious state, your body opens up like a book and reveals more about you than maybe you have shared with yourself. And it's pretty incredible if one can build that therapeutic alliance more than just five minutes before going, going asleep, you gain a whole different dimension of healing. When you have trust in somebody who seems to be leading you to the verge of a medical coma and death, literally, and back. Because remember, anesthesia, you know, they say that the poison is just in the dose. There's a saying, right? And that's what anesthesia is. Um, but there's also, like I said, a very brief window where if you have trust in who is your guide, you can actually have a transformative healing experience. I am just kind of blown away here and, and I've been scribbling some notes and hopefully I can read them. Um, no. What I would like, it, it's amazing because you talk about beforehand, before surgery about, you know, do we, the, the patient that's going in, um, how they prepare, but not only that, but how you prepare by contacting them the night before, which I think I, I've never heard of that. And you, I would have to say that you are the only one and that, that is amazing. But what I find very interesting, and obviously, you know, I don't know about these things. Um, you mentioned something about the, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that your body systems are abolished by anesthesia. So obviously the monitoring part of, you know, um, blood pressure, you know, all that kind of stuff is obviously vitally important. What, um, I guess my question would be, you know, after that person wakes from anesthesia, do we automatically wake up or is this there? Cause I'm very, obviously very curious. Is there a process by which you, Dr. Kaveh, wake your patient up? Like how, I'm fascinated by that because I'm a nerd with science and history. So how does that happen? What, yes, fantastic question. Actually, many people wonder this. The act of waking up from anesthesia is passive. Depending on how you were asleep, whether it was from gas or from IV agents that go to your brain. That's a passive process of redistribution of anesthetic chemicals from the central nervous system out to exit the body, whether through other body tissues or exhaled out through your lungs. <clears throat> but there, <laughs> it's so fascinating how people wake up from anesthesia and actually how all mammals wake up. It's, it's, it seems to be conserved across mammals and how the central nervous system works is you can tranquilize polar bears and uh, tigers and cats, and they actually have stereotypical movements with their bodies when they're waking up. We don't yet fully understand why there are characteristic movements and tremors as mammals emerge from anesthesia, but 
What is interesting, and you can ask any anesthesiologist, it's difficult to test this for many reasons, as you'll see in a second, but how we fall asleep appears to influence how we wake up. Now, we don't remember what it's like waking up for the most part. It's very rare for a patient to actually remember the moment when the breathing tube was removed from their mouth because the memory formation parts of the brain are not back online with few exceptions, depending on the type of surgery. So while the patient is still amnestic, maybe you've heard of patients waking up emotional or delirious, kicking, screaming, crying, cussing, slapping, just absolutely all over the place. It's a moment of profound disinhibition because the frontal cortex is one of the first parts of the brain that's turned off with anesthesia. The frontal cortex being the part that inhibits us from doing things that we shouldn't do in public, like, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, so alcohol, same thing. Alcohol and anesthetic agents have some degree of overlap. It's actually a very fascinating topic we can talk about. Um, but, but when that part of the brain is disinhibited, that's when part of our true self might come up. Some of our doubts and securities, et cetera, can come up, which is, first of all, profound in and of itself. If, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have retained memory to remember that experience, with some exceptions that we can talk about as well, but uh, how we fall asleep. So the more calm, peaceful, reassured we are that we're going to be guided and safe as we fall asleep. In my experience, in the experience and I'm sure any anesthesiologist you can ask, they'll wake up more peaceful, calm and relaxed, less likely to wake up in a completely delirious state. Why does this matter? Well, aside from maybe falling off the table and hurting themselves and hurting someone else, in certain populations, in particular the elderly, the more delirious patients are after surgery and anesthesia, the possibly greater increased risk of cognitive impairments after anesthesia. Nobody wants grandma to wake up the more demented or demented if they were not demented before, right? We, these are uh, indelible consequences that we may be able to prevent Maybe not with 100% prevention, but once again, nothing is 100% in medicine. Our mammograms aren't gonna be 100% accurate, but we do them anyways. The steps to preventing delirium and to preventing these post-operative complications don't cost us anything. And there's very few things in medicine that have such potential benefits without any increased cost, without any increased chance of side effects, as simply talking to your patient before surgery and I think we talked about this before. When the mask goes on, I don't play these games of counting down. I use that moment to reassure them that they're loved for, cared for, guided, that they're the most important person in the whole world for that team in the operating room for the next hour or two or three or however long their surgery is. I hope it's relatively intuitive that if we can feel embraced and cared for before we approach the doorstep of death, which is anesthesia, especially general anesthesia with the breathing tube, we're likely to wake up more relaxed and with fewer complications. That is so true. And I actually, uh, funny that you, the way that you're actually describing it, I, I had a procedure done, I think it was uh, in November, December. And, you know, when I was going in, the, uh, I think it was, a, I want to say it was a full female staff and the anesthesiologist came in and she came in with her staff and, you know, did exactly kind of what you were saying. They introduced themselves. I mean, I had not talked to them the night before or whatever, like you're doing. 
but they, you know, how are you feeling? Uh, they were asking me not typical medical questions, which has been done in the past. It was more how are you feeling today? Um, you know, and they, you know, just so you know, we're going to, you know, once we're going to give you that, we're going to move you over to one side. We're going to be doing this. We're going to be doing that. But, you know, rest assured, we're here for you. And, you know, literally after the procedure was done, I did wake up very, very calming. And I don't normally remember uh, anyone specifically speaking to me, but this one particular uh, staff member of the anesthesiologist, I remembered her and she was still there along with the anesthesiologist kind of in the background. And she said, Hi, how are you feeling? How are you doing? We're still here. And I'm like, is it over? <laughs> And she said, yes, yeah, she did fine. And it was, it was truly, um, because I'm one of those patients that is neurotic going in. I try not to be neurotic coming out, but I, I'm not your best patient in the world. So uh, just because I get all, I get nerved up. I'm, I'm just one of those nervous people going under for any reason. And I think part of that has to do with, and I don't know if, if my sister remembers, when we were younger, we actually had a cousin who had it had a fatal uh, reaction to anesthesia anesthesia with uh, he had dental work done and i think subconsciously because that happened i want to say it was probably in my early 20s late teens early 20s and i think that kind of bothered me uh, probably more so than i let on or, or even subconsciously knew and i really other than knowing that story i was really never under an anesthetic before and i'm wondering if so many other patients out there uh, you know, you know, something that triggers them, because like you're talking about, like this is a procedure before basically, you know, you're in a, your mind is in, and body is in such a state where the next step is, you know, 10 feet under, you know, theoretically speaking, you know, and you don't want to get to that, but that's kind of where you, your, your mind is at, you're that close. And I don't think people put that relevance on it and that nervousness, that, okay, I'm going under, I'm going to sleep, am I going to wake up? I think a lot of people just have that thought process going in. And I love that, you know, you, you know, you're, you're inter interacting with the patient to, to make them kind of like, let's say, put it to the side and forget about it, but because they're automatically now put at ease, they feel like, okay, I've got this relationship with this person. He's watching over me or she's watching over me. I, I feel better about it. So I could see where that would be, would add so much value to that patient now waking up and, so going back to the wake up part, I was under the assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you lower, or so, so in other words, you're, you're increasing or whatever the medicine that makes you go under the anesthetic, and then you slowly decrease it in a, in a natural state, or, or that doesn't, that's not really true. Yeah, no, no. Well, I'm very sorry about your cousin. That yeah. is so tragic, and I'm sure must have had such a mark on you mm -hmm. and your sister and your other family members. Wow. Um, you're certainly not alone. One in four patients, um, depends on the type of surgery, of course, but right. one in four patients will actually postpone or cancel elective surgery out of concern from the general anesthesia alone. So wow. yeah. a lot of people have, and I'm sure people even without that family history, uh, and, and that's just so traumatic, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was, like I said, it, 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 you know, definitely, was traumatic, you know, from what I remember and, and just thinking, okay, I'm, and, and this happened in a dental office. Uh, so, you know, they weren't, they weren't in an OR, obviously unexpected, obviously whatever the medication was, our cousin was allergic to it, that particular, because I know there's different types of anesthetics. Um, 
you know, so, you know, and it, it's tragic, you know, d definitely tragic and just one of those sad freak accidents per se. Um, but I wonder how many other people with not even having that experience, knowing, you know, really what's transpiring and, you know, that whole nervousness, will I wake up? Yeah, well, certainly many people do because that statistic, I was from 2010, last time I saw it published, but I don't think it's changed significantly. So okay. certainly not alone. Right. With regards to how anesthesia uh, wears off or how it comes off, it's exactly how you said. So it's so fascinating because we're not aware of this in our daily lives, but everything that we breathe, eat, drink, every, everything that is around our body gets into our bodies. And anesthesia gas is the most potent example of that, no pun intended, because you're breathing something in. It's going into your lungs, into your bloodstream, because everything will almost everything you breathe has a conduit to enter your bloodstream, goes to mm -hmm. your brain, crosses the blood-brain barrier, turns off a bunch of neurons. And then we turn off the gas and it's not, you know, it's turning off. You have to time it with the surgery and there's a lot of art and science that goes into that. But right. eventually it comes out of your brain, back into your blood, reaches your lungs, crosses the epithelial barrier there, and then you breathe it out. And that is a relatively passive process. Now, the interesting thing there is that in our lives, we're surrounded by so many environmental pollutants. Yeah, and for sure. Forget everything we breathe ends up not only in our brains in this case, but our kidneys, livers, lungs, everywhere in our body, which is, is just as a reminder of how precious our bodies are and how vulnerable and really how sensitive we are to everything in the environment. Even, I mean, anesthesia are colorless gases. We can't even see them, but they, can literally turn our, our brains off and kill us at the wrong dose. Um, for IV agents, it's very similar. The most common agent is propofol, which unfortunately has a bad uh, as a stigma from Michael Jackson, but is very safe when used with a trained medical professional. Um, otherwise, very, very lethal, as we, we've seen from, from Michael Jackson. But anyways, that goes into your IV, goes to your brain, and then when we turn off the infusion of propofol, eventually it redistributes out of the brain into the fatty tissues and the rest of your body. Uh, and it's also important to note that all of these are fat soluble because they have to cross the blood-brain barrier. Two important things there are that one, if a chemical crosses the blood-brain barrier, it also crosses the placental barrier. So pregnant women need to be aware that anything that crosses the blood-brain barrier will cross their placental barrier and the fetus's blood-brain barrier. So things like, and I'm not, I'm not condoning or speaking against anything here, but what, what crosses the blood-brain barrier? Obviously anesthetics, so that's why we have very, very different protocols. I shouldn't say very different, but we have very strict protocols for pregnant women who are having non-obstetric surgery. That is a whole different category of care. Um, but then things like alcohol, marijuana, any types of drugs that affect how we feel are gonna affect how the baby feels. And it is very important to note that marijuana use has not only incredible impacts under anesthesia, it's highly fat soluble, sticks around in the, in the central nervous system and the brain and spinal cord for up to 30 days after wow. regular use. Um, and, has, and that's something we can actually tell very readily under anesthesia, whether patients tell us or not. Uh, I practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, so it's something we're seeing a lot more of because of recent regulatory changes. But anyways, uh, that also affects uh, the fetus's brain. We don't yet know how because we don't have nearly enough data. But um, certainly for perioperative, uh, 
very part of opioids. This is an example of how it impacts our management. If, uh, unfortunately, uh, I've cared for mothers that have opioid addictions. The baby can come out with the same exact symptoms of an opioid overdose um, if the mother was using opioids peripartum, or if we give the mother opioids for their C-section, right? Because if we're giving IV fentanyl or whatnot, that's going to also cross the placental barrier, reach the baby's brain. Anyway, so we have to have we have to have special management of the um, baby. That can land them in the NICU. It can cause all sorts of complications. Usually, we can't treat them, but we are very vulnerable and precious, and we need to be mindful of our environment. Is what it comes down to. Curious, uh, quick question, and I'll have Jan and Janice interject. Uh, funny that you say I, I did have a C-section. Um, actually, I. Both of my children were C-sections. The first was because it was breached, so I was under anesthetic. Never, ever, this is the very first time, he's 39 years old now, this is the very first time that I've heard that, you know, the anesthetic I was given would have passed through the placenta to him. And I'm curious if there's any studies, which you say, you know, might not be. Um, obviously, the obvious ones, if, if, if you're dealing with an opi opioid addiction or an addicted parent, you know, mom versus, the, you know, getting to their child's bloodstream and, and placenta and all that, with any long-lasting, oh, uh, things that might have to do with learning, uh, any kind of disabilities, any, any of the, is there any studies on that? Because I know you said there's, a, there's, a lot, there's not a lot of studies on that, but I'd be curious to see if there was any correlation with the anesthetic uh, in, the, in the child? Very good question. I was specifically referring to marijuana because okay. that we have not studied very well because it simply hasn't been legalized for long enough, nor are all patients forthright for obvious reasons. Um, you should always, as a little plug, just as a PSA here, you should always be honest with all your doctors and yes. particularly your anesthesiologist. There is nobody you want to lie to less than anyone right. else in the world, but the person who's taking care of you um, when you're on, like I said, the doorstep of death. Um, with regards to anesthetics, fortunately, we do have a lot of data because any baby that has surgery has to have anesthesia as well. So those agents that we would give mom that cross the baby's okay. uh, blood-brain barrier are the same anesthetic agents we use in babies who are going to have anesthesia. And in the, the whole world, every year, millions of children have anesthesia, fortunately. Right. Fortunately, we're not aware of significant, they're not very strong signals that suggest risks of autism, learning disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, nice. for especially one-time doses. There are some children that have particular congenital abnormalities that might need large uh, doses of anesthesia right. or, or many surgeries like 10, 20, 40, 50 surgeries in the first two or three years of life. Those are outliers. I right. can't speak to that. But for the majority, for one surgery or two or even you know 10, right. In the first 10 years of life, for example, negligible lifts. Uh, okay. risk. We're not aware of anything. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you. Jan, what do you think of all this? <laughs> I am just, I'm kind of blown away, but I do have a funny story to tell about anesthesia. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Covey will kind of laugh at this. I remember what, obviously when they, you know, did the IV. And then the last thing, that I remember was coming home. Like, I don't remember waking up or anything, but apparently when they had me over in recovery, the surgeon came over and the anesthesiologist 
and I demanded to know what they did with my chocolate. Have no recollection. <laughs> Have no recollection. Um, and then, you know, when they reported to my husband, oh, she did fine. And she do you have any chocolate in your car? Because like, she's like, not yelling at us, but she's demanding to know where her chocolate, what we did with her chocolate. Recollection. And when I went back for my post-op, of course, I was, you know, the laugh of the, I, you know, they said, oh, there's the chocolate lady. They referred to <laughs> the chocolate lady. But, you know, funny story. But, you know, I think seriously, though, when Does somebody... Does share something on that? This is just, yeah. this is so funny. Uh, so this is um, maybe not a daily occurrence, but at least a couple times a week, we have these things. And it is so interesting where these ideas are coming from. It's just, I mean, a couple of things there are important. One is that the effect of the amnesia can be profound as you experience. Um, and certain patients are more susceptible to it than others. We know that certain people are going to be more or less resistant to the medication that you receive that cause that amnesia. Sounds like for a very long time, usually it wears off um, faster. But um, the, the more interesting point here is why chocolate? <laughs> were you thinking about were you thinking about chocolate before? I apparently said something about oh boy you know because you can't eat after a certain amount of time and I couldn't have certain things and and I really was I guess I said to my husband uh, I could really go for one of those um, peanut butter cup things with the dark chocolate I'm like oh my god dark chocolate sounds good right now so then I understood probably where that came from and when they put me under obviously I had chocolate on my mind so so what if you had on your mind waking up comfortable warm loved hungry to eat something so that you're not nauseous because it's hard to be hungry and nauseous at the same time right if you can wake up demanding chocolate which patients do maybe not chocolate specifically but i've had the funniest requests like i said on a weekly basis if you could I don't want to say the word incepted because that carries a connotation that we are brain controlling or mind controlling. Right. But how powerful could it be if there was an intentional effort by the person who's guiding you through this process to help enforce positive affirmations about how you're going to feel when you wake up? Clearly chocolate wasn't even directly suggested to you and it came up. Isn't that incredible, the potential there that's untapped? I, I think that, that that is amazing because again, you know, so much of that positivity and, and putting that kind of ease of that patient's worries uh, really will really uh, push forward the, the healthy healing, uh, no matter how severe the, the actual surgery is, or even if it's, you know, maybe a minor surgery knowing that, you know, I'm going to come out of this feeling well, it's the first step to uh, being a better version of myself, whether it has to do with a broken bone or, you know, maybe you're repairing a heart and, you know, my heart's going to be healthier and stronger, stronger and really is going to add value to my longevity. I mean, I think all those things, like you're saying, they're positive affirmations that are not only going to ease maybe the worry of that patient, but also carry it forward into the recovery. I love that. It's not even a maybe because we have evidence. Right. At 2022, we have more than enough evidence, especially when there's no downside. But how much stigma is there against? I mean, when I try to, people accuse me of trying to brainwash people or people think that this is hokey pokey stuff that, oh, yeah. we're, we're so 
convinced of the power of pharmaceuticals, which is a real, they are absolutely powerful and life-saving, but we shortchange our agency and the power of our mind-body connections to heal. This is just one example. I mean, we can go on and talking about cancer, talking about autoimmune disease, talking about cancer risk, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, time permitting, I know we don't have, we have only have limited time today, but this is just the tip of the iceberg for what we have so much evidence for, but we don't have a system that's ready to embrace it. And there's still a lot of patient hesitation and skepticism thinking this is mesmerism and hypnosis. Well, no, those things work when done in the appropriate medical context. So what are you doing to really promote this type of really realization from other, uh, you, you know, your peers, um, anyone in the medical industry to say, you know what, this is, this is adding value. We have statistics. We have proof that this is working. Why don't we form, you know, just a, I don't want to say bedside man, but, but another piece to that of, of really caring for the patient and really making that that patient feels calm, cool, and collective um, and have a better outcome because we know it works. Is that being well-received or are you kind of like, you know, finding some, I wouldn't say resistance, but skepticism from your peers? Yeah, this is, <laughs> we may have shared this earlier as well when we were talking. When I was a resident, I, I was uh, ridiculed at the idea of doing these things. No one's going to say it's bad to reassure patients. People aren't going to say that in your face that, oh, this is a ridiculous idea. But when the rubber wants to meet the road, and for better or worse, in a medical care system that is focused on production, there is, and it, it pains me to say this, and I don't, this is not meant to be an expose, it's just meant to be a reality of what doctors and their patients have to go through every day. It's a mill of seeing patients, in my case, getting them through surgery and moving on to the next patient. If it's your primary care doctor, maybe you've seen, why, why are they always 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes late? Why are they always looking tired? Why are they always apologizing for being late? It's because unfortunately we have to balance um, an unforgiving billing system, an unforgiving system that we are unfortunately in, it sounds, it sounds dramatic, but indentured to in some way because of how we are employed. We are human beings. We also have a job, right? It's, I mean, I love doing this for patients, but it's also, I can't just run rogue and afford to lose it every day, right? Um, I mean, not to be too personal, but I hope you appreciate it. We, we can't just do our own thing Unless right. we have our own, and this is, Nicole goes into the topic of direct primary care, concierge medicine, et cetera. Um, but because I cannot change the system of surgery because you can't, it's very difficult to have a kind of direct primary care model for surgery. There are a couple of things that I personally do. The most noteworthy is probably the social media that, you're, um, that you alluded to because uh, we can democratize this education. Like I said, there aren't side effects. As for example, as much as I love botanicals, I love supplements, I love herbs, there is a cost, not only a wallet cost, of course, but there is a cost to anytime we take something external, when we place our locus of control externally. And this is very real. It's been right. best studied for pharmaceuticals. When you give somebody a blood pressure pill, they're less likely to adopt other healthy lifestyle things like regular exercise, et cetera, et cetera. Not everybody, obviously, right? But more than 50% of people. So you got to pause and think if we're, if pharmaceuticals have this effect, if we're recommending valerian root, ginger, et cetera, et cetera, which, hey, I love and I do all the time for patients, 
it can't just be a blanket recommendation yeah. because you're foregoing part of your agency thinking that this external locus might somehow control me. And it can, but you can't look at it as a silver bullet. And all too often, it's the, it's the lowest common denominator. It takes your doctor to know who is the right candidate for any type of recommendation, whether it be an herb or a pharmaceutical or whatever, right? Uh, but I hope you can see where it can get, it gets kind of sticky and all the stuff we're talking about, we don't have time to do. If it's only like five minutes before you're gonna go under because the next patient's an hour late, you know, they're gonna be, right. they've been yeah. starving since midnight. The poor patient there, it's not their fault that we're an hour late, but you, so you, you but you, <laughs> you see where I'm coming from. I don't need to keep no, going. No, 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 no. I, I think it's, it's great input. It's, it's time management. And, you know, the bottom line is whether people really embrace it, you know, the medical industry, hospitals, doctors, it's a business. Um, and, you know, you, you always you always have to think fiscally bottom line, as well as time management with, you know, I, I've got X amount of surgeries in a day. I've got to make sure they fit all in and also equate to, you know, wh whether my schedule pivots somewhere else because of now emergency came through or, you know, God forbid something went wrong with the surgery that led me to another pivot that the surgery is taking longer than than expected. So uh, it, it is a it is a precarious balance. I can see that. What do you think, Jan? Well, I have a question. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. And I guess the question or maybe it's more of a comment is the the pharmaceutical aspect of it, um, you, I, I'm not by any means like bashing pharmaceuticals, but for instance, um, if somebody is on a, as you mentioned, like a blood pressure medication, I think it's almost a disservice if maybe the nurse or that primary care, like, are their convert, and I assume that I know what the answer is, is that there's just not enough time to what, you know, as far as time management and seeing all the patients. I, are there conversations, do you think maybe perhaps going on, um, you know, maybe if you, because I remember distinctly my primary case care saying to me, you know, maybe if you lost a couple of pounds, you know, because I was potentially going to be put on blood pressure medication. And then, like I said, no, like I'm a firm believer in if I can control something within my means, for instance, I have a non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So I don't eat food that has gluten in it. Problem solved. They wanted to take my gallbladder out. And I'm like, no, thank you. Realizing <laughs> maybe at some point that I may have to. So I guess the question is, do you maybe foresee in the future um, primary cares, you know, having these type of um, conversations with their patients to maybe have more of a doctor-patient type of relationship, I guess. Well, I'm so happy that you're able to avoid uh, an early and hopefully you'll ever need a, a gallbladder removal. That's fantastic. And that's a type of patient empowerment that just not only saves you incredible money and pain and hardship and risk of complications, mm -hmm. but also you just feel so much more empowered to take control of your life and you feel better at the end of the day because you could have your gallbladder taken out, but if you still kept having gluten, you could still feel crummy, right? I, <laughs> I, I, um, and, you know, and then you could take proton pump inhibitors, Prilosex and Pepsids, which you know are not by accident one of the most prescribed and one of the most purchased over-the-counter medications on the planet. It's not by accident, right? 
right? Uh, so, but to answer your question, we are certainly doing that in our clinics, but the part that's missing is that it's not good enough in anywhere in the world just to make a generic recommendation. I can tell you to lose weight. I can tell you to smoke, stop smoking, stop drinking alcohol, try to run every day. I mean, duh, I, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know this. How right. do you actually, the conversation is how, right? Everything in life has a what, why, and how. Most people know the what's, what, I gotta lose weight. What, I need to actually take my medications every day, otherwise I might have another heart attack, right? But it's the, why am I doing this? That we don't always remember, because if you're doing anything just to appease your doctor, it's not gonna happen, right? He keeps chores, right? Willpower is a limited resource. And mm -hmm. you only have a certain amount of it every day. Sure, you can refill the cup, and, and we should, but you can't fight something to make it happen. So that conversation with, primary care doctors, I mean, primary care is mission impossible. So it's maybe unfair to expect them to do this because it's simply infeasible. But the conversation has to happen with somebody about the, why are we doing it? Is it to live long enough to see our grandchildren? Is it so that maybe I'm having my rotator cuff repaired so I can lift my kids again or throw a football with them? You know, otherwise, why are we doing this? And then the how is like, there's many, many ways of lowering blood pressure. Losing weight, well, yeah, I mean, once again, duh, but is it like through diet? Is it through getting a dog and running with your dog every day or going walks or having more social interactions so you do more physical activities with friends? There's a, tough, a whole bunch of ways. Is it with yoga? Is it with Tai Chi? Is it with mindfulness? Many things can do that, but we don't necessarily go into the house because they're not always accepted uh, in our current medical system. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. It it, it, it is it is mind blowing. I mean, we are we're 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 pro advocates on you know health and wellness. You know, through everything everything through gut health and and really being taken charge because you do only have one body. It's it's not up to my husband. It's not up to my kids and my grandchildren. It's up to me to make sure that I know uh, all those pieces. But that I'm the driving force of the why. I have to be uh, because it's ultimately I'm the one doing the work. So, I mean, I think once people understand the, the power of the mindset and where you, you know, can, can really uh, heal better with a positive mindset and really look forward to longevity and feeling good and uh, just, just feel that overall health and wellness from whether you're that sick patient all the way until you, where you're kind of at that still that healthy state, but you have to keep working on it. I mean, we're always a work in progress, aren't we? Absolutely. And actually, I want to share a question just because you're talking about your C-sections earlier. And thank you for sharing that because um, this is, it's funny. It's like you go through all these decades of medical training and you don't learn these things. And then when you're finally on your own and they, you know, the stakes are all higher and all that is when you learn all these things, that's like, wow, I wish someone had told me this earlier, you know, but right. delivery is one of the most interesting surgeries. I mean, if it's a cesarean section, but even for labor and delivery, it is so interesting because we usually do spinals um, or epidurals for C-sections. I guess you I, had for both I, of them. I, uh, the, fir the first uh, C-section was a spinal. And I have to say, talking about a funny story. So, uh, and I'll, I'll make sure that it's quick. Uh, obviously, very nerve.p. Uh, our son was breached. And um, so back in 83, um, you know, they, they put you in the sign of the cross. My, my, my arms were taped down. And um, then they explained what they were going to do. And they said, then they flipped me back over and they explained that, okay, we're going to get this needle. It's going to go into your spine. 
Well, sadly, the anesthesiologist I had uh, missed his mark uh, the first time. And my, uh, my left, because I was in the fetal position, my left leg went, you know, jerked off. And, uh, I'm assuming he had a nerve maybe. Uh, so th that happened three times before he... <laughs> so now my husband's behind me. And again, I've already admitted, I still admit to this day, I'm not a very good patient. So I'm like, I need a drape. And, you know, of course, then the, the, uh, the doctor said, okay, we're going to make the incision. I go, I, I don't need to know. Just do what you got to do. And literally the only thing I could move was my head. And um, so, you know, you know my, the, the whole thing that's shaking is my head because I'm trying to convince them, like, you don't understand. I, you can't tell me this stuff. I don't want to know. So my husband actually almost passed out because when they said we're making the incision, he, he actually looked over to watch and he almost goes. And I felt bad for the anesthetic, anesthesiologist doctor. I did um, because uh, I'm sure that wasn't his finest, you know, moment. Um, but he, you know, I, you know, I recovered fine. Um, the fun, the funny part of that, we tell that story uh, with my leg just popping out. And I said, I'm assuming, obviously you're in a, you're, you're, that's your profession that he must've hit a nerve or something. He missed his mark and he's okay. We're going to try We're going to try it again. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So it, 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 as much as it was not the best experience, um, the funny part came in where, uh, they rolled me back over, surgery's been done, our son is born, and my husband comes in, they said, well, you, you know, you're going to start feeling this, so you're going to start feeling, you know, some pain's going to come, but if you wiggle your toes, they'll give you something, and I said, do you think I can wiggle my flipping toes, because <laughs> I couldn't at that point, obviously, I was numb from here down, and then, uh, yeah, so it was just one of those funny, funny experiences. And then my second experience uh, was a scheduled C-section. Um, and what happened was they, th this time, um, same thing. So he, no, 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 I did not. Yes, I, I was awake so he could come in because we knew this would be our last child. And, uh, you know, last second we knew it was a girl. Okay, we got a boy, we got a girl, we're done. Tie the tubes, they did that. Like, yada, yada. Well, unfortunately um, with the spinal, you're, you, they wanted, you're supposed to lay flat uh, on your back, I believe for 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours. I'm, I'm assuming it was 24 hours. Well, the nurse accidentally took the catheter out. So I'm in bed, no one's around and I have the urge that I, I've got to go pee. <laughs> I'm ringing, no one's coming. I don't ask me how I do this. I crawled out of bed and I'm in the bathroom and I'm trying to get myself. And now I hear my husband come in and he said, where's my wife? And they're like, well, she was just here. And now they, they're doing some sort of code. I can hear people running up and down. And I'm like, and I'm thinking that I'm pounding on the door, which I'm not, because obviously I had no strength. I'm like, I'm in here. Help me. Help me get up. And they immediately, you know, after they found me, put me back in. And they're like, oh my God, like, well, how, why did you get up? You're not supposed to get up. Well, within a few hours, I understood why. So I immediately started getting migraines. And that's actually how my migraines started. I never had migraines in my life, but because you're supposed to stay flat on your back, I'm assuming it was like 24 hours, that didn't occur. Um, and it, you know what? It, it makes for, for, for funny conversations about talking about how the kids were born and we still get a kick out of it. So there was like no, no harm, no foul, just kind of funny stories with both of them. So that was my experience. <laughs> wow, well, I hope the migraines aren't too severe anymore. 
No, they, they usually come uh, only a few times a year now. I really, really watch my sodium level, you know, uh, really take care of my, 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 my gut health, which really helps. I avoid certain foods that would be triggers. And maybe once or twice will be, you know, a cluster that comes and it comes on pretty quick. Um, but, you know, they're, they're manageable. They're not like they years ago, they were a lot worse. Now it's maybe once or twice a year, if that. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> so I do have um, a question. Um, I saw that you had some um, devices in your hand. You kind of somewhat showed us. But I do have a very specific question about the breathing tube. I assume that everybody gets a breathing tube when they go under. No, 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 definitely not. Okay. And part uh, of that is actually within the, part of it is within the patient's uh, ability to decide, believe it or not. Yeah. Oh, well, th that's, good. that's good to know. And so can you show us the devices that you have in your hand, if you want? Oh my gosh, I actually have a whole box that I use for my, the, the social media videos that you mentioned earlier. Um, the most common one is gonna be the mask that goes on, you know, right before you, you fall asleep. Yes. Which it just, it blows my mind how often, um, like I love the people that I work with, you know, the crew of nurses and all that, they're all fantastic. But for some reason, there's a tendency for everyone to want to smash this on patients' faces as they're about to fall asleep. The reason is because you need to breathe 100% oxygen before you're falling asleep to build up a reserve of oxygen because anesthesia turns off the breathing part of your brain. So you don't breathe, oh. hence why we place breathing tube. So we build up the oxygen to give us a reserve. So in this couple of minutes, um, we have some time to place the breathing tube. But it's like something even as simple as that. Like I try to never have them push it on because one, it's uncomfortable. And two, you're already nervous because you're like cold. You have like your butt flapping in the air because like you're in this little hospital gown. <laughs> For all the reasons we said, you're rightfully so quite anxious. Um, the last thing you want is for someone to be putting some beach ball flavored plastic, you know, over your face and it's going in your eyes and you're all uncomfortable. So it's like, no, no, no. Let the patient hold it up themselves they're far less likely to feel claustrophobic, far less likely to be having the air, you know, go into their eyeballs. And because, you know, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but it's very uncomfortable to have air in your eyeballs, you know? Yeah. Because the oxygen coming out of the ventilator going through the mask. Anyways, um, yeah, so this is very important. And actually, it's one of the places where we can, um, some patients that don't want the uh, brain or the memory wiping medication, I actually do some breathing exercises with them while they have the oxygen mask on because it's like built in time. For them to breathe they have to breathe well why not breathe mindfully mm -hmm. and breathe together i turn on the monitors i bring up the volumes they can hear their heartbeat and we actually do a biofeedback that's one of the wow. strategies i have for helping break anxiety through one of the most powerful mechanisms we know of uh and and that's just one of the examples where you have that precious window it only takes two minutes to build up the oxygen in your lungs if you can take right. minutes, two minutes have them breathe in a way that will save for surgery but also will help them fall asleep more relaxed so they have less chance of waking up, you know, all delirious, like we said, less chance they're gonna wake up in pain, nauseous, et cetera. Um, that's this mask. This is one of the breathing tubes we use. I know everyone says it looks so suspicious. It really does. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna joke. It's a very funny one. Yeah, I can think a couple of things that I'm just not uh, Yeah, I felt this, I thought, <laughs> I thought the same thing. I'm like, what is Dr. Kabay doing over there? Oh, hmm. yeah. So this actually goes in the back of your mouth and, um, Oh, so that, I yeah. mentioned it. it. It's funny, no, so nobody knows. And it, it, it's just so, um, I think it's not fair The patients, not, it's not meant to scare them, but yeah, there's a chance of sore throat uh, after surgery from the breathing tube. 
when I talk to my patients, you know, when I'm calling them, I, I always walk through the possible side effects, even though they're not, for the most part, they are not serious with, right. with regards to the breathing tube. They're all like, you're going to put a breathing tube. I've never had that before. And I'm like, you've had spine surgery and this surgery and that surgery. You've had a breathing tube for those surgeries. Like, right. but nobody ever told me. And I'm like, well, did you wake up with a sore throat? And they're like, yeah, I, I don't know why. And I'm like, well, because you had something in your mouth. How right. unsettling is it to have surgery? Wake up and you had knee surgery, but your throat hurts. And right. then the number of people that are so concerned about like, were they abused under anesthesia? And there's terrible stories, right? They're very rare, but these stories do exist of horrible things happening when people are unconscious. And, and I have so many patients that come to me with PTSD or anxiety because they've heard these stories as rare as they are, they're obviously incredibly unsettling. And if that, could, if that cycle could be broken by just explaining that, yeah, you're going to have some soft plastic. I mean, this is not this is soft. It's not harmful. Yes, there's a chance of sore throat. There's right. natural ways, by the way, that you can reduce that sore throat. But if we don't talk about it, how are we going to be prepared for it? Did you know that chewing gum can actually help reduce that sore throat after? Or afterwards, things like licorice lozenges. Having honey. Just, uh, yeah, honey. Honey is because is, uh, I, I, I tend to get hoarse often because I talk too much, I guess. But anywho, I, uh, I, I, I do put uh, honey in my tea, my, my organic tea, and I'll take a teaspoon of honey and it does, it soothes, soothes the throat. There you go. But if they don't know what's happening, what, you know, right. we're, it's the power of knowledge. These are the small examples, right? We can talk about knowledge of other things that are going to be far more impactful. But um, anyway, so suspicious looking as it is, it's actually a life support thing. Okay. And surprisingly, um, let me actually grab one other. Cool. That is weird looking. It definitely is. So if you're listening to this, you're not seeing this. So you need to watch it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so for our listeners, exactly uh, what Dr. Anthony is showing us uh, is a little odd looking. It's not your typical over the nose mouth mask. And that's all <laughs> I will say. <laughs> I'm not going to say the word that everyone thinks of, but we're all thinking of the exact same yes, word. of course uh, we are. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I feel like it's a Jerry Seinfeld episode. It begins with this. We should have started at the beginning and everyone would be like, what are they talking about? What is <laughs> something that goes in my throat that looks like that, right? Right. So I'm going to share one more as well, because it just shows, I mean, this is just a, a very small sliver of all the tools we have in anesthesia, right. but this one, versus this one here. So this is the one that I said earlier that the suspicious looking one, and this is right. the more traditional breathing yes. tube that goes once again into the back. And it's also right. soft and plastic. Uh, the interesting thing is that this one goes between your vocal cords. So if we have patients who are like opera singers, so who, who depend on their voice, maybe like yourselves, like if it's their well-being and their livelihood, um, I'm gonna want to use the breathing tube that is uh, as least invasive as possible. and it's, you know, as awkward as this looks, it's actually far less invasive than the other one. Um, oh, and this is, where, this is where the power is, where if I can talk to patients the night before, we can actually increase the likelihood of me being able to use this one. Um, I've never right. seen that one. And I've had, you know, enough surgeries where it's, I think it's always been the tube one. Mm. The normal, the normal, the last one you just showed, never. And, yeah, the and the last, uh, shutty. Um, <laughs> The last one, one, right? You love this one. Yeah. Well, you know, as I'm looking at it, I would assume that it looks like it's more moldable. It's not, 
I would say it's less invasive. Yeah, well, this one is moldable as well. I, we actually place, um, it's a little bit show and tell. Um, we place a rigid, this is like, a, uh, we call it a stylet. When I remove that rigid part out, it's actually pretty flexible as well. But the issue is that it goes past the vocal cords and you can actually dislodge the cartilage around your vocal cords. Oh, um, yeah. Because you're going deeper into this. This actually goes near the lungs, whereas this other one just goes past your tongue. Um, okay. Among the things I do on my social media is I actually have an, I have an ultrasound that I uh, I use for my patients, but I also do demonstrations on my own body to show people what like my heart, liver, lungs, kidneys, and vocal cords look like because I scan my whole body on uh, <laughs> live on social media. Just as, as an example of how when you learn about these things, it's so much more. It, you gain so much power learning not only about their existence because you know you have a heart. But right. when you can start manipulating your body in ways where you can see your heart beating differently, that's one of those sparks that it's like, wow, that guy just changed how his heart looks like and how it's beating by his that's, breathing. Right. And how, how, you know, impactful is that? Because a lot of people are visual learners uh, yeah. and or it, it sparks that vision within their own brains to actually see how things are coordinated, your lungs, your heart while you're and you did that all on social media. <laughs> Yeah, I actually I do it on lives. It's been a, I haven't done it in yeah. a month or two, but yeah, yeah, I do a, on live sessions. I, uh, I have one phone. Well, I have this incredible ultrasound. This stuff, this is one of the most impressive advances in medicine. I connect it to my phone. Um, and actually with patients, because around the time of anesthesia, remember, uh, you can't tell us how you're feeling when you're under. So a patient, if I'm concerned for a heart attack, I need, they can't tell me they're having chest pain. I need to look at their heart to make sure their heart doesn't look like it's having a heart attack. So I always have an ultrasound with me in my bag anywhere I go um, for scanning the heart and lungs. And also I do nerve blocks. Um, some, you know, don't have time to talk about it today, but um, we actually do a lot of interventions with ultrasounds. That's why I have one with me, but I use that for the fun educational aspects as well. And it's just so cool to see your own body because you appreciate how much control you have over it. Right. And that's biofeedback in essence. Yeah, and, yeah. and a, great, a great learning tool, you know, for, for you is, is yeah. being really understanding and knowing where your patient is at any given, mo at any given moment during the surgery. I think that's amazing. That, that is absolutely- your pocket. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I, it's absolutely fascinating to me um, that you're, you're showcasing that in such a way where, it's you're not giving too much information, but you're explaining, um, you're explaining it in a way that the layperson can understand and relate. Like it's almost like connecting the dots. We know how to connect the dot. We know how to connect the dots, but actually seeing it demonstrated, there's a better appreciation for that. Um, I watch obviously a few of your uh, videos on TikToks, and I'm like, I'm gonna have to do a um, a jam session on. Uh, watching some of these videos, they're really, yeah. um, they're very entertaining, but, but they're educational. They're so educational. And, and I love that. Um, wow. Thank you. I, I'm just going to do just a very quick plug is that as interesting as TikTok is, um, it's difficult to go into the longer topics um, in 15 seconds. And we're talking about the stuff we talked about today. How do you heal the mind? How, how do you use surgery as an opportunity not to get PTSD, but to maybe right. PTSD. I actually have YouTube videos where I go into more depth or longer than 15 seconds, obviously. But um, if anyone's interested, uh, it, 
we do break down a lot of those mysteries of the mind, body, and anesthesia because they're intricately linked. And, you know, it's not an accident that there is so much historically for thousands of years, we've been absolutely captivated by uh, substances like alcohol, marijuana, opium, and presently now we're talking about mushrooms. I'm not condoning any of them, but I'm saying that there is a curiosity about how these interact with the brain. The beauty that nobody talks about is that some people, maybe not all, but some people can have similar experiences, if you will, with the mind alone. And, you know, I don't want to go into, you know, religion and spirituality, but spiritual awakenings in a completely secular sense are a very tangible experience for many people. So one does not need to have anesthesia. You don't need to come to the operating room to heal. Now, there's a reason why ketamine clinics are so popular because it is in some patients who are acutely suicidal or, you know, treatment, refractory depression, anxiety. These are cases where pharmaceutical intervention might be entirely life-changing and can open the door for the inner healing to kick in. Right? So I'm not saying that the role for, um, in a medical setting, using pharmaceuticals, ketamine being the most studied, I use it in the operating room as an anesthetic agent uh, all the time. So we know how safe it is. We know it's long-term safety profile, et cetera. But this can be accomplished without it. And it comes down to the patient and what their past experiences have been about what is the appropriate way. So it, it, it's just frustrating on social media. I try to explain this in, in, in my content where, Anytime one sees a blanket recommendation from somebody pushing hard for a supplement or a herb or a vitamin or some sort of therapeutic technique, you just need to turn around and walk away because they're just trying to sell you something. True mm. medicine, there's, there's a quote by Sir William Osler, and this is like over a hundred years ago. We call him the founder of Western medicine or modern medicine. He said, um, I don't want to butcher the quote, but you need to know about the disease the patient has, or pardon you need to know about the patient that has the disease as much as you know about the disease that the patient has. I love so that. you need to know the patient, right? And far too much of what you know in advertising is like, take this drug. It's like, who are you to know to recommend this drug to somebody who you know nothing about? Right. Then you run into all the pharmaceutical things we talked about earlier, disempowering patients, taking away agency. Most recently, maybe you've heard about direct consumer genetic testing. We didn't mm -hmm. talk about that today, but that is just one of the things that breaks my heart. We think that more information is harmless. This is not the case at all. When we tell people they have genes that cause depression, is it a surprise that they're more likely to experience depressive symptoms? Is it when we tell patients that they're going to have, they have, they're set up for obesity, their hormonal balance actually changes, even if they don't even have those genes, because the power of the mind body goes in both directions. Yeah. And that's why it's not benign to recommend things, blanket approach to just help people to buy things. It's, it's making money, but it's not right for patients. And it breaks my heart. It really yeah. does. No, and, and you know, I think we, we underestimate the brain, uh, the mind, uh, you know, and, and I think there's, you know, it's so, it's so intricate. I, I don't even think we've even tapped into, and, I, and they say that, I don't know what the exact study was, but they talk about the average a uh, person doesn't even use, you know, it, it's a huge amount of, of, their, of their, their brain senses because it just, you know, it's an intricate machine in, in it of itself. And we know that the power of suggestion, the power of affirmations, power of positive, positivity can really change um, the trajectory of someone's day, you know, and that's in day to day. So, of course, it would most definitely be so impactful when they're about to go under anesthetic. I could see that clearly.
and for the rest of life as well. I just um, yes, because when when we look at the big epidemics of today, sure, COVID and opioid epidemic, et cetera, et cetera, but uh, chronic pain is one of the leading causes of morbidity in this country. I mean, days off of work, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously this leads to depression, anxiety, because there's a cycle with pain and our right. mental health. Did you know that, this is a beautiful study from 2019. I remember right before COVID came out, you could, they did an open label placebo study giving people IV salt water. They knew it was salt water. They gave people IV ketorolac, which is a very powerful ibuprofen. It's almost as well, it's as powerful as low-dose morphine. I use it in the operating room, not something you take at home, right? But right. You, you tell people, I'm going to give you salt water. It's not the medication. I want to see how it helps your pain. Their pain gets better. Open label placebo. So it's not just the operating room. When we're talking about right. people that have chronic pain day in, day out, who can't maintain stable relationships, can't go to work, have financial troubles, et cetera, you know, if only we could take this step that we know is true in the most stressful moments of life and apply it to the more everyday, still stressful moments of life. How much more empowered could people be to turn their life around, turn their lives around? Absolutely. And I, and I absolutely love that. And I, again, I guess it just goes back to, I think, Jim, people really don't know the power, the power of, you know, I, I hate to say the word, the power of suggestion, because it almost sounds like, you know, we had a little, you know, little pocket watch going back and forth and hypnotize you, but it, it truly is, uh, you know, what you put out in the universe, what, you know, we talk about that, but putting out in the universe, you're going to attract, if you're around negativity all the time, you're going to feel miserable. You're going to have headaches. Your, your life's going to feel like crap. But when you are around and, you know, positive thinkers and, and actually speak out those affirmations that are healing to your own body and your mind, it's a powerful thing. And you want to know why the pocket watch thing is why, or at least one reason why it's kind of the laughing stock. It actually has to do with anesthesia, surprisingly. When <laughs> Mesmer was first describing this, because remember before we had anesthesia, we didn't have good ways of tolerating surgery. There's three, uh, alcohol, marijuana, and opioids. We tried, but they're horribly dangerous. Many people died. Right. It's actually illegal for some time right. to do it. So this let people look at things like acupuncture and look at hypnosis. So unfortunately, when Mesmer himself was describing all this, it was right at the time when ether was first discovered. Well, it was discovered a long time ago, but it was when it was first used to accomplish general anesthesia. So wow. now the whole world says, holy guacamole, we've discovered a way to have painless surgery, which is absolutely complete game changer in medicine. Fundamentally changed surgery as a practice because you couldn't have, really have surgery before. Certainly not like this surgery. Uh, complete changes the, the face of medicine. And now Mesmer looks like an idiot because he's trying to like, he, now the yo-yo <laughs> thing isn't real, but it's like, we don't need this. We have ether. So he right. fell off. He completely fell off. Until what? Until we have an opioid epidemic now, and we have children who, more and more children are having surgery because we're keeping them alive longer, ones that may have died from congenital heart disease, et cetera, um, we're able to do surgery early on. And there's a concern that we don't want to give kids too much anesthesia, what you were talking about earlier. So it's like, well, if we don't want to give them too much anesthesia, what are our options? Oh, well, 150 years ago, we were talking about hypnosis. Can we reintroduce that today? And that's kind of been the renaissance, if you will, of these other mind-body approaches because of the populations that are most 
um, in danger, which are the young kids, also the older adults, grandma and grandpa are also at risk of side effects from anesthesia. Right. But why should we relegate it just to them? Everyone can benefit from these things. So hopefully we'll see it moving up from the fringes of very young and very old to actually meet the mainstream and hopefully not just inside the operating room, but also outside the operating room. Uh, but isn't it just so funny how coincidentally all this stuff could just totally yeah. fell off the radar? I am, and I'm absolutely fascinated by the history of it, which we're going to have to definitely dive more into. Probably, we definitely have to have you on again. That's just oh uh, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. There's just too 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 much that like uh, I think I'm I'm looking at you and I'm looking. I I, I our minds are spinning of different pieces to uh, you know what Dr. Anthony can share with us. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's just amazing. Um, Dr. Anthony, I, I know that you're on TikTok, obviously, and you have YouTube. Are there any other social media platforms that you regularly visit that people can find you on? I have a website where I, um, I every video has a blog post associated with it that goes in, linking all of the articles behind this because we have to be evidence-based, otherwise we're not doing a service to patients. So sure. uh, all of the things I talked about in my videos are in the blog post, there's links to all of the original articles. So I always recommend people to uh, read more. Don't just trust what people say. Um, if you're so inclined to wanna dig deeper, all the primary sources are all there. Uh, and they're also not only a valuable source for anyone preparing for surgery, but also if you want to, like I said, extrapolate this outside the operating room, because we have stressful moments all the time. Like I said, before giving a speech, um, athletes, you know who's very good, right? Athletes who are have millions of dollars on the line before major games, they have high stakes. They're also people that not coincidentally really embrace a lot of the things that we're talking about because they know, I mean, they can't, <laughs> you can't take a drink before a basketball game. They need to find natural ways. Exactly. To be prepared, to be in the zone, in the flow, and to perform at their best because you can't do well if you're not prepared and you can't prepare with, you know, you can't smoke a joint before a game, right? So they have found ways. Well, some. <laughs> well, yeah. Ian, what is the, the meta, the, um, the website address? Is it medicalsecrets.com? Medicalsecretsmd.com. Thank you. You heard that. We're going to make sure that we're going to uh, put all these links under um, uh, under our um, upload. We we always do that so yeah. people can find you. And, and I will say that um, in the work, something I've been uh, well, the past weeks have been very busy. Our dog and cat got spayed, and a close family member had surgery. So I've been running a convalescent home here for the last week. But <laughs> um, on the near horizon, I'm actually uh, planning on opening a clinic to. Uh, be able to share the things that we talk about outside of the stressed setting of surgery or a preoperative consultation and all that. And actually have time to talk about like for life and things outside surgery. Cause a lot of people are struggling with the things that we've talked about. Most people on the planet have struggled with these at some point in their lives and they may never have surgery. Hopefully they never will. I don't want someone to have surgery, right? Right, right. Um, the, fact, the fact that it can be a powerful window is great to use, but if we can use this, these, um, this knowledge, in everyday life. And apply uh, it, you know. Exactly, so that's something that I'm hoping the next month is actually um, on the works. Oh so God. that's, that's exciting here in the San Francisco. And congratulations, yeah. that's exciting. Well, we are definitely gonna have to have you back on, Dr. Anthony, there was just so, uh, we, we it was jam, it was a jam-packed hour plus uh, with so much, uh, 
input and value to so many people. Don't you think, Jan? I mean, it just, oh like you said, God. not just COR, but, you know, in, in our everyday lives. Yes. And in your everyday lives, you know, have that conversation with your physician. And on that note, Dr. Anthony Covey, oh my gosh, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy, busy schedule to be with us here today on Sailing Saturday. Welcome, welcome to the Two Sisters family. You will definitely be a repeat offender. <laughs> thank you thank you you're welcome and my name is janice aka wellness diva 5.0 and i'm with two sisters and this is carol so aka naughty boss live after an hour and 15 minutes of such great valuable information for all of our listeners viewers uh, don't forget you know once this is uploaded you will get all the information to be able to reach dr anthony and get more information uh, on not only what he's doing now but his upcoming clinic, which is exciting. It is sailing into Saturday. What are you doing for you? What mindset are you creating? What are you surrounding yourself with? Positivity, kindness, paying it forward. Those are all good things that we all should be doing to make for a better world. We will see you on Monday for Mindset Monday. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye, everyone. Thank you.